When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's another edition of the Terry's Talking Podcast with award-winning columnist Terry Pluto from The Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com and me, your host, David Campbell, sports manager at Cleveland.com. Terry, this podcast is our baby and we're going to rock it today. You ready? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get into it. How are you doing after the game last night? That was uh, that was some series. Yeah, it was. I, I just enjoyed the last two weeks so much and really the whole season. You know, Once we got to about July and it's like, they might be for real. Uh, at least to be interesting. Uh, and look, I love baseball, and I've always been a, su- a sucker for sort of a younger developing team. So I admit there's a couple bias right there. But in terms of uh, the entertainment value they gave, uh, and I think it's like kind of unmatched because it was so unexpected. Yeah, and the way this team played, and this is something they've really cultivated, I think, the yeah. way they play with the hustle and the infield hits and and the defense and just the scrappiness, I think it really kind of captivated fans this year in a way that, that nobody was really expecting. When, the, when you win 13 games in your last at bat, and I believe that's a franchise record, that does it too. Uh, but the secret to that, along with scoring later in games, is their bullpen was so good good so that if the game was close you know they just kept it there bought their offense time to be able to score and I think when you looked in the uh, I believe for the entire postseason the bullpen only allowed three runs at something like 28 innings it, it was it was remarkable well we've talked about this a lot Terry about how good the guardians are at their jobs the front office. Mm-hmm. Uh, Terry Francona and his staff, and and it, you're right, it was a remarkable season. But that said, the the rawness of last night's loss sure. is still there for fans. And so I wanted to run through a few things and just kind of close the book on on some of these things off the series itself against the Yankees. So first of all, there was a lot of debate about whether the rainout was good or bad for the Guardians. Was it unfair? The, you know, Paul Hoynes, our colleague who was in New York, he said he wrote a piece about how the Guardians were not happy about how things were dragged on and the Yankees were like, well, we're going to play and we're not going to play. And MLB was meeting with the Yankees because they're the home team. Uh, what did you think of the rain out and whether that mattered? It probably mattered to an extent, but the thing that MLB should have done, the forecast was terrible by five or six o'clock, just bang the game. See, if you do that, then you end, you stop all the who's it being favored or whatever. It's like, look, that map is like a bunch of green and red and orange. It look like somebody threw up on it. Forget it. We're not playing. Then everybody can go back to their hotel and plan. Instead, you keep them there, both teams, because remember, both teams got in there like 3 in the morning. You keep them sitting around the park. They usually get there for, you know, 2 or 3 o'clock, if not earlier, for a 7.30 game. And you kept them there till past 10 o'clock. And then you're scrambling for another hotel and everything else. So I fault them just for creating 
of you know a logistical mess, and that easily could have been avoided. Uh, did it help the Yankees? Yeah, it gave them another day for Cortez, but you don't know now the other Italian, whoever they were going to pitch. I mean, the way the Guardians were hitting it, all playoffs, it was going to be a, a challenge for them. You know, the big question is what the uh, Guardians are doing for a pitcher. Right, right. Well, let's get into that. So a lot of fans wanted the Guardians to go with Shane Bieber in that game. Mm-hmm. And, and you know pitchers, and especially Shane Bieber, they always want the ball. The Guardians kind of said, listen, you've been through a lot. You've thrown a lot of innings this year. You've had some some injury problems in, in 2021. And they basically just told him, you know what, we're, we're not going to go with you. And it's a very long-term play. And it, it kind of made me think of An- the Andrew Miller situation, Terry, uh, during the 2016 World Series, the, the Indians, as they were called then, rode Andrew Miller as hard as they could. And he took him <laughs> – he's a large part of the reason he got they got the Game 7 of the World Series. But then Andrew Miller, he really fell off a cliff after that. And I think his arm was not his the arm, same. Yeah, and he and, had a history of arm problems too. To, to right. Add See, that's the thing there you look at on this. I know I'm interrupting, but I want to set the context. Well, no, I I did want to. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. ahead. I believe Miller had a Tommy John. Certainly he had a history of arm problems. Uh, And remember how his motion was, that sidearm whip-like motion, a little like Clevenger's and that. That's always another red flag. So keep going, but you're really onto something. Well, I I just wanted to throw in real quick, like Andrew Miller (laughs) – there's a, there's a connection that I made. I don't know that the Guardians made it, but they're thinking long-term. Shane Bieber, I think, is under team control for two more seasons yes. uh, in terms of arbitration. And so this was not like a one-season decision. But anyway, what did you think about the decision not to start Bieber, given all that background? Well, the other guy that um, they rode that year was Cody uh, – not Cody Allen. He ended up having arm problems too. And by the way, he also had a – I know for a fact he had a Tommy John while in college. But the other person – was Corey Kluber. And if you remember by game seven, he had nothing, barely a little more than Savali. So it didn't bother me. When you look at the number of innings pitched, uh, Garrett Cole and Bieber had the most in the American League, especially when you count in their two postseason appearances. So that's, that's a lot to ask. Now, the question was, Beaver versus Savali, and I say, why did it have to be Beaver versus Savali? Why not a, bu- a pure bullpen game? Given that the bullpen had pitched extremely well the whole the whole run up and into this series, so and they were all rested. Now that's where one thing you're that even extra days of rest came in. So I mean, Class A and Stefan, all those guys had not pitched for two days because if you recall in the Sunday night game which I was a little surprised with. He came out with Cody Morris and Eli Morgan and uh, Plesak. Uh, so I would not, by the way, start at Plesak. I don't think anyone else would have, but that was the other, quote, pure starting pitcher. But you could have rolled out there, started go with you'd go with Stefan for a couple of innings and some of those other guys that they had, you know, Karen Check, Klasse, a Morgan could have come back. By the way, Cody Morris was great. You could have tried him. Uh, as opposed to a guy who had not pitched for 13 days and, uh, and had been on the disabled list three different times with three different injuries. And the thing about when you watch Classe, excuse me, when you watch Savali pitch, you certainly know Emmanuel Classe, but his stuff is marginal. You know, those slow breaking balls and that kind of thing. Um, it, I mean, I was worried about that. So 
that is the direction I would have went. Bieber, you know, and if you want to try to sign the guy to a long-term contract, which they are trying to do, you do want to say, look, we do care about you. We didn't just want to wear you totally out. Well, it's a decision that people are going to be debating all off season, but uh, I think you're right there. The bullpen game might have been the way to go, but you know how baseball is. It, it you make one decision and something else happens, and it could have, yeah, it could have ended out right. ended I mean, exactly I the mean, same way. If as you're as not going to score more than one run, it's irrelevant. That's true. That's Although true. you so, hate being down three nothing because it felt like thirty. It did. That was a and, tough thing. I mean, the the recipe for success for this team was get a lead, make it a seven inning game, and then turn it over to Karen Shack and Class A, and or be down two to one in those last couple of innings and come back somehow against their bullpen. That was the other right way to go. It so is you know it's a tough one, but it's, I'm sitting there going, I mean, it's game five. They're in the Bronx playing for got the Yankees scared to death. What more can you ask for, right? Yeah, like uh, yeah. like like Tito said, he would have walked to New York if yeah, they told him at the beginning from like Goodyear or whatever. We would have done that. Yeah, you know, you look. I'm looking at some batting averages now, and the only guys that really showed up in the playoffs uh, were Jose hit 333 and Quan hit 300. Uh, Jose drove in four runs. I got all seven games up, by the way, and Quan drove in two. You know, Oscar hit 226. He had a homer, he had four RBIs, but the home run won a game, and he won it. And he drove in winning runs in two other games. To his uh, his credit, it was, it was amazing. SpongeBob was amazing. You know, in the late innings, he swings at a pitch that's 14 feet outside, and then then he almost falls down and lines a base it up the middle. Um, you know, it was interesting to me how Will Brennan hardly played all year. Brought him up late because you know that was my my other guy and I'm not always this year I was right on the, my two guys which were Oscar and, and Brennan but in the past I've been on the Owen Miller Ben Francisco you know that kind of train that uh, barely got out of the station so uh, we this, it's like everything else but uh, it's just uh, it was it was odd they're still were scrambling to try to put together you know who they wanted to play where and they just they just didn't hit bottom line yeah, the biggest surprise for me, Terry, last night you mentioned SpongeBob. I thought for sure some fan in Yankee Stadium was going to show up in a Squidward costume. <laughs> like he's like you. Squidward's uh, grumpy neighbor who's his yeah. kind of his. Yeah, Squidward <laughs> would, yeah. Well, you know, I had a Squidward postseason, and this is hard to believe because he was so consistent and so great during the regular season, was uh, Jimenez. He was uh, 5 for 28, but listen to this, David, 14 strikeouts and 28 at-bats for him. And then the other guy who was just okay, but the odd thing was the number of strikeouts was Rosario. Rosario struck out 10 times in 29 at-bats. He struck out more than SpongeBob did. Um, so, you know, the Yankees probably never want to see Stephen Kwan again. What a pain he is to them. A guy's bunting and he hits a home run and it just, you know, he's running all over the place. Um, Long at bats every time. Yeah, bats just, out into ten. No, he pitches. only walked yeah. twice, but it just felt like you're right. He was up there for an eternity, and you know, just he is the why. Why Jose is the the heart and soul of the team, kind of the symbol of it to the way they want to play is Quan. 
Yeah, and and I think Quan gained some national recognition for just what he's meant to the mm-hmm. Guardians too during this series. I think he gained a lot of respect. But uh, you, and, know, you th- know, I'm going to roll a little farther with him. Yeah, and then sure. you roll back to taking that team that he was the leadoff hitter of Oregon State to the College World Series in the title. You know, there was the same thing there. They all talked about how he was he really was the classic leadoff guy. Instead of like Aaron Judge leading off or some of these other teams where they do it, the leadoff guy. If you could find that guy that's getting on base and, you know, hitting close to 300 and he's got some speed, uh, I just think it's a tremendous asset. I'm okay with actually batting a power hitter second, but I don't like him leading off. I, I just don't. I want somebody on base for him, even if he's drawing a walk, because it just makes it a little less likely that guy's going to just pitch around him. Well, yeah. Let me look what the Yankees do with batting Aaron Judge second. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that that's that strategy there. So you were mentioning uh, Jimenez's stats, Terry, and I I wanted to talk about this real quick. For for an organization that is is good at what they do, as the Guardians are in terms of finding every possible st- statistical way to get an edge, I I still can't believe they gave away that out on Jimenez when he was sliding into first. Yes, and, and Rizzo's glove came up short. I mean, yeah. everybody who was watching the game at home within 30 seconds saw the replay and saw that the glove did not touch the bag. And Bob Costas is talking about it. And it made me think of the – like the Browns have somebody up in the press box who's watching this stuff and, and lets the coaches know whether to challenge or not. And Sandy Alomar, the first base coach, is standing there. He's got to pick up on that. Somebody watching TV – in the organization has to pick up on it. They've really got to streamline their instant replay methods and clean that up for next season. Cause they gave away an out there. And I think that was something that they're going to have to look at. And they, what did you think of that? First of all, you get two challenges. So why not? In the playoffs, you get two. Secondly, remember Sunday night, they challenged two odd plays where they were kind of like lottery tickets and they were wrong. I just thought they just dropped it. I don't. I believe they have a guy that's a replay guy. They're all the games, so I don't know. Francona said they didn't have enough time or something. That just sounded odd. It did. It's like they, they, you're right. They challenged two that they lost, and then the one that was really obvious that they could have won. And boy, you need every out against the Yankees, right? Right. In you're in the middle five. innings, and you still have one more in your back pocket. Why not? Yeah, yeah. And it was. It just. It needs to happen faster, and it needs to be communicated mm-hmm. down to the dugout. So they can get a challenge because they gave one away there, and that that shouldn't happen. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to mention that, and that's something we'll see if they improve on next season. But yeah, I'm um, sure they, I'm sure they do, and uh, it would be interesting. I'm going to maybe try to find out this weekend if there was some story behind the story there. In other words, if there was some mechanical glitch or whatever. Yeah, and it might not have mattered, but you know how baseball is, Terry. You you get one guy on, and all of a sudden things start happening, well, and it gets well, you weird. Well, you make the reliever throw to another hitter. That's what you're trying to do is wear out their bullpen. And uh, besides, as you said, you get Jimenez on. He can run. He can steal second. Uh, I forgot it was coming up after him. I think it might have been Miles or not Miles. It might have been Hedges or somebody. It, I mean, you're at the bottom of the order, but maybe a pinch hit. You're looking for anything to happen. Even winning a challenge lifts, lifts the team up, go, oh, at least something went our way. All right. And, and the last thing I wanted to get get, uh, get out there, Terry, so I thought that Josh Naylor rocking the baby stuff after he hit the home run was <laughs> yeah. really entertaining. And I think baseball needs a little bit more of this kind of just 
it's it's kind of trash talk, but it's it's in a fun way. The Yankees didn't like it. They kind of were trolling Josh <laughs> Naylor after they won Fine. Game Five on you the know, last it, out. It, the right. fans it, brought posters. What'd you think of all that? And Naylor said, "Well, if you do it, you know, you get that's how you are." And, and they, by the way, Naylor, you know, you've seen him at these flame out moments. He is the nicest guy. He'll talk when things are going well. He'll talk when they're bad. He's very classy. Um, I think it was Andre Knott said, but we, we got to remember he's from Canada and he's got that hockey player mentality about him and uh, which is up your ice, uh, <laughs> the ice mentality since you are a hockey referee among other things. So uh, I thought it was fine. Look, it's, and it's genuine for him. You know, you just didn't know. They just said, stop headbutting the manager. That was the only rule uh, they had for him. And, you know, he plays the game with such enthusiasm and joy. And, and those who uh, are a little side note, I was watching the broadcast. When Remember, I forgot what game it was where he ran down to first base. It had to be one of the ones in New York. And he stepped funny on the bag. And Costas and Ron Darling are going on, yeah, that happens sometimes when, you know, you're there and you hit the bag. I'm going, his leg is an erector set. That's the one with all the – it's got a rod in there, and he screws and bolts. The man shouldn't even be standing up, and they just missed it. I mean, I don't know what kind of research somebody did for them, or or they just didn't see it. But it was a critical point because then, by the way, they ended up having to uh, DHM and they put. You know, I will say this: put Gar- Gabriel Alice Arias at first base. And go, oh, great! What's going to happen there? And the kid goes three for eleven. So there you go. Yeah, and that but, was a really under underrated event in the series. Like, yeah. if if Naylor could have played first, mm-hmm. what would have changed? Who, how would things have changed? And we can wonder about that forever. Uh, you know, Arius, I thought acquitted himself very well, yeah, as he you did. just said. But you know, it, it, it's baseball. And it's fun to think about that stuff. But um, anyway, I just thought I thought the Naylor and rocking the baby. I thought that yeah, was a lot I of fun. I thought it was, and he's genuine because he's just he he loves the game. You know, he is the you know, it, it starts with Jose and then goes to Ahmed. But, you know, now he's actually played a few years, makes him a little older than there, and he and he brings that fire too. And you want these guys excited about playing. And he, I mean, he in New York, he talked about every kid wants this. When you're a ballpark, going to Yankee Stadium, you know, big crowd, they're all booing you. You want this. Well, at least he wants that. And he got it. So, I, and, you know, you look at how he played. All right, what kind of series did he have? Uh, not great. He was uh, six for 31, batted 194. He had a homer and three RBIs. Um, Barely faced a right-hander the whole series, I don't yeah, think. That, and that is the, that's a weakness. Now, they're going to have to deal with that because during the year he had 173 against lefties. And so that will be a thing. They could really use a, another right-handed bat with some pop. I know they have Oscar, but see, Oscar proved he could play the outfield. Um, so you would not like to get a first baseman with who's a right-handed bat with some power who could DH. And then sometimes maybe you platoon Naylor. And also, I just think it's really hard to play Naylor all the time with uh, that leg thing. Was a, I mean, that was a career-threatening injury. And anybody who's ever had the type of surgery where they're putting nuts and bolts and rods into any part of your body. You know, you get a weather leg and all kinds of stuff going on with that. And you always think about it. It's yep. always there. So, all right, Terry, anything else on the guardians? It was a 
Other we than wrap that, up. I'm just kind of looking at. I want to look at Naylor's regular stats because now you hit regular season stats. Now he hit 20 homers this year and 449 at bats. He batted 256, 771 OPS, and um, that's that's really nice. Let's see how bad the splits were. If I if my memory is correct, uh, uh, you know, in terms of yeah, he hit 173 against lefties. So uh, it was that that was a that was a problem for him and. Uh, he had 283, so he pounds righties. I mean, not only hit 173 against lefties, David, he had one home run in 110 at bats. So it was that's that's just tough matchups for him. Well, again, it was some season, as you wrote about after the game last night, Terry. I think you really made some good points just about how far this franchise has come. And, and Tito said after the game, we think this is just the beginning for us. And if you look at their roster, I think that aside from – Jose Ramirez, Miles Straw, and Class A, who are all signed to multi-year deals. Everybody else is either t- under team control for next season or going to arbitration, which is kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they, they'll be able to keep this core together for a while, it looks like. Yeah, the big decision will be, and it, who knew that they would have discussion of, um, do they sign, did they offer Rosario uh, some type of longer-term contract? Uh, Jose wants it, and my feeling is Francona does too, uh, because uh, – you can say, yeah, they got all these shortstop prospects in that, but if, if you look at uh, Ahmad during the last three full seasons, throughout the, I'm, I always throw out the 20 year because what do you make of a 60 game? So throw that out. But the last three full seasons, he hits like 283 and like a 720 OPS, and he hits like about 14 homers. He's so consistent. I mean, it's the same numbers. That's what you know you're going to get. And then when you have him on your team, he's a little like Rajay Davis. Remember how Davis was hustling all the time and brings those intangibles. And you may look at the numbers and go, eh, I don't know. But it's it's not pure numbers. And that is one of the things that Fr- Terry Francona brought to uh, this very analytic-driven organization was clubhouse chemistry and the fact that you do need a certain type of guys on your team over 162 games to, to make it work. And when Francona came in with that, it's a little different than some of the other uh, managers they could have had, just didn't have the same gravitas as, as Francona. So, so that'll be that, that, but really that when you talk about this, as opposed to the past, are, gonna, are they going to trade Jose? Are they going to trade this guy? No, it's, there's nobody to talk about trading other than, I don't think they're trading Bieber with two years left to go, but you never know. I guess it would be if, Remember, Drew Rosenhaus is his agent, and Rosenhaus hired a guy from Scott Boros' agency to run the uh, uh, baseball part of his operation. And by far, Bieber is their biggest name client. So that could be a very tough sign. All right, just going back to Rosario, he is arbitration eligible for 2023, and then he's unrestricted after 2023. So just to frame that, but uh, certainly an entertaining season. And. Um, Boy, some real memories there for fans that I think they were not expecting at the beginning of the season. So, all right, Terry, let's take a break here. We are going to get into the Browns when we get back. Lots to talk about there. I want to get your thoughts on how they fix this. And we've got some good Hey Terry questions. Also, the Cavs open Cavs, tonight. They're yes. in Toronto. We're going to get into that a little bit. And we got some good Hey Terry questions. So we'll be right back on Terry's Talking. We're back on Terry's talking. David Campbell and Terry Pluto. Terry, the Cavaliers play their season opener tonight in Toronto. It's a 7.30 tip-off against the Raptors, and then they play at Chicago, another road game on Saturday at 8. 
Then they're home Sunday for the home opener against Washington. That one is at seven. Well, what are you expecting from the Cavaliers this year? A lot of people are very excited about what they can be with this young core. What are you seeing? And, and I don't know if you want to make a, a season prediction for how many games or playoff, how far they'll go, but what are you seeing? Okay, a couple of things. Number one, I'll ask you this. I would say that since the year 2000, let's just do that, there's been only two seasons that were more anticipated than this one. Would have been one when LeBron was drafted in 02 or whatever that was. And then the other is when LeBron returned in 14. And then I would say this one. Because even uh, with LeBron after that, but the initial excitement is that. Now, secondly, and I'm going to write about this. I hadn't thought about it. You know, the Mitchell trade, you know, what he brings to the Cavs. This reminds me a little bit of when Wayne Embry traded uh, Kevin Johnson, who ended up being an all-star, and Tyrone Corbin and a first-round pick and some other stuff for Larry Nance because he felt that he had a young core with Brad Doherty, Mark Price, uh, Craig Elo, that group, and he thought, and Hot Rod Williams, they needed a veteran uh, who could just take them to another level. And while Nance did not win the title here, you know, he was part of the team that went to the Final Four in 92. You know, the last time they won a round of the playoffs without LeBron was the 1993 Cavaliers. So that's a, that's a key part. And Nance was right in the prime of his career. He was in his late 20s. Now, Mitchell's even younger than that. So. I'm I'm excited. I want to see I want to see what it looks like. But I was very encouraged in, in some of the preseason games I saw, and I was glad to see JB played those guys together. I'm talking about Mitchell and Garland played them together a fair amount in the, in the preseason um, because they they need to play. You, you can't just do it in scrimmages and things. Yeah, there's no substitution for game competition. And and what is it going to look like tonight? You know, when when it's for real and and the chemistry mm-hmm. is starting to be established. I think that's going to be something that fans are really going to be watching about how this backcourt. And there's only you, one basketball, as you know. So you'll like this, David, because you know I'm I'm totally anti betting or whatever. But this is a warning, and I learned this from a guy a long time ago. Anybody that bets opening day in the NBA, they should just throw their money right out the window. Crazy stuff happens, and the teams tend to look ragged. So if you remember, go back to LeBron's first game when he came back. I forgot who they played. I keep thinking it's the Knicks, but no matter. They were awful that night, and he was awful. There was all this hype, and I remember sitting there going, this is this looked like the team that was here before LeBron. You know, this, <laughs> But I just think all the – even though they're pros, they've been around, they get fired up for this stuff. And as you said, too, when the uh, the ball goes up and they're playing for real, uh, it changes a lot. So how far can this team go? How many games you see them winning? I don't know if you want to put a number on it. No, I did. I wrote it uh, Sunday, 51. Oh, that's right. That's right, 51, yep. 51 and 31. I got them winning around the playoffs. Then I went through all my awful predictions so that anybody who looks at that number would not really exactly – shouldn't bet a dime on it. Uh, so that was – but I think it's hard to win 50 games in the NBA. Now, I, 
I kind of toss out some of the LeBron teams because LeBron is just, I mean, he's a player of a generation. And you just don't see that to their, but like the last time they won 50 games without LeBron was that uh, 93 team with Lenny Wilkins as coach. Um, they won 53 that year. They had a couple of seasons in there with, with Mark Price and go on where they won 57. Now I was on the beat Cavs beat for the beacon journal then. And it showed me really how hard it was to win over 50 games uh, when you don't have a, a flat out superstar like Michael Jordan or, or LeBron or somebody that you were fa- and it turned out you'd be facing that guy sometimes because they were in that central division, which at that point was pretty good with the, with, with the bulls. And remember the Pistons were coming on the other side of their championships there with Dumars and those guys, but they were, they were good too. And it was, um, yeah, they they were at the end of the bad boys. It was, it was fun. And I think that's how it's going to be this time. You know, we remember how the last year we had a taste of Cavs fun. I think there's going to be more of that. I just want to see if they can keep their defensive focus because you marketing. I've been told I'm wrong about this by a couple of NBA people that I respect. They're in front offices for other teams because I was saying I thought marketing was underrated, uh, that he helped not only being tall on the defensive end, but his three-point shooting was critical to them. And it isn't like Dan, like um, uh, when you bring in Kevin Love that you try to have to hide him defensively on some of these guys. Mark and him would go out and try to defend anybody. So I think he will be missed. That doesn't negate the good feelings about the trade, but I'm just saying that that helped give them that big team identity and that three-point shooting. So Chris Fedor, our colleague who covers the Cavs, has had a lot of really interesting stuff the last few days previewing the team. Um, He wrote a really good takeout yesterday on Evan Mobley, and I was kind of a little taken aback when I was reading it because they're really working with him. And after every practice, the coaches go up to him and they end every session by saying HOF, Hall of Fame. And they think that not only can he help the Cavs get deep into the playoffs, over the next three to five years and maybe to the NBA finals, they are seeing him as a hall of fame talent. And I was like, really? Okay. Interesting. Is Evan Mobley a hall of fame talent potentially Terry? What do you think about those aspirations and and his potential? I just hate when they do that. (laughs) Even though if you could sit there and say, boy, he's got the same. I mean, at the same age, I remember seeing Chris Bosch as a rookie and Mobley as a rookie. I'm going to throw out Garnett because he came out of high school and his, he struggled his first year. Uh, but by, all right, if you put him in there, all three, I liked Mobley better. That's right now, though. But what those what about, guys what did. What about compared to Giannis? I mean, it, it, the names that were dropped in, in Chris's yeah, story that. included they, him, too. I mean, yeah, he's coming from Greece. Basketball is so hard. They come from all over. They're different ages. Mobley seemed to have more polished than Giannis at that point after the first year. But Giannis was, you know, just exceptional in terms of how he drove himself. Actually, all of those guys. And we would be more impressed with Bosch had he played longer. Remember, his career ended 
prematurely because of I forgot what his blood clots or something. And secondly, the last number of years of his career, he was the odd man out. Talk to Kevin Love how that feels when you had that was with Wade and LeBron. So his stats weren't quite as great as it would have been. But yes, but I, I don't. But the thing is, I'm not Bickerstaff. I'm not there with Mobley. I don't know Mobley at all. And maybe that's the best way to motivate him. I want to say this, though. Chris wrote two magnificent stories. Not good, not great, magnificent. The story, if you haven't read, on fixing Okoro's shot. We'll see how it works out. But I felt I had just moved into the space age of coaching compared to, I remember when I was covering the beat, and you know how you fixed the guy's shot? You had one coach working with him, and he just worked on the shot. And they now get your left hand a little more. And they might have had some video with it, but they didn't have this Noah thing that measured the arc of the shots and all this other stuff. Um, I'll be very curious to see if it works. But it also told me there's a reason, David, while the three-point shooting keeps going up and up and up, the percentages, and I think a lot of this stuff is helping that. And as a grumpy old man, I hate to admit it because I still like, you know, the old getting into the gym, but they are getting into the gym. And he's still taking a couple hundred shots, only is being measured and taught in a new way. In real time. Yeah, just you're right, Terry. That Okora story was just fascinating. This NOAA thing, it's N-O-A-H. It's a basketball real-time machine. It, it sits under the basket. It has facial recognition. This is all in Chris's story. <laughs> yeah. pointed out, so it knows when Isaac Okoro is shooting jumpers, and it's like, all right, Isaac Okoro is shooting. The ball goes up, and it, it says 46 degrees, 44 degrees. 42 degrees, like every shot that goes up, it is telling the coaches and Isaac Okoro in real time, what angle, what shot angle his shot is going up. And I, did you know this, that 45 degrees is the perfect angle? I didn't know anything in that story. None of that. I didn't know any of that stuff. That's why I said it was magnificent. Even if I was felt sometimes I was back in a calculus class where I didn't do particularly well, uh, I was still going, wow. Now I hope it works. Although I'm, I'm glad also in there they mentioned that he sometimes, which I now the layman noticed, he doesn't his left hand kind of floats around the ball. It isn't in the same spot all the time. The great shooters are able to catch and shoot with the with the their hands in the same spot all the time. I had never thought other than you would think, boy, that shot's a line drive, or that shot looks to me like it has too much arc on it. That was about as far as I ever went till Noah showed up in my life. The other day. <laughs> Noah. Yeah, I mean, I always thought, like, all right, if you stand above the hoop and drop the ball in, that's the best angle. So you should shoot it like yeah. 80 degrees, but 45. So, Noah but says it, 45. But, it's a, so. but it's a critical thing because they will not and, – and Chris also had it there. So, <clears throat> basically, he was the most open guy in the NBA, the plate. You know, they have that, and I like that. That's kind of interesting, too, how far is a player from – you when you take your shots he's three feet away or four feet or six feet and they just didn't guard him well they're not going to guard him this year either now he had a six-week span i remember last year because i remember looking this up where he shot about 40 percent on threes i'm talking about a coral and that really helped him but it was like from february to the end of march and it just went away he didn't shoot him particularly well before and did could hardly shoot him at all after 
so we'll see how this works out. But they are not going to – whoever that other small forward is, they're not going to guard him. And I would prefer Okoro to start with uh, the other big four, as they are now, because he doesn't need the ball. This well, I don't know. Are they starting Levert or is Bernie Bickers? I mean, JV Bickerstaff still acting like this is a big secret now. Yeah, it's a, he, he's Chris Fedor tried to ask me at practice. Who, who are you asking? I mean, who are you yeah. uh, starting at small forward? And JB said, "Nice try, buddy." Yeah. <laughs> so well, I think he's guarding it, but we'll know soon enough. So I mean, they have plenty of times to figure out their uh, their first two. Uh, their, and their really, locations. Terry, does it matter? I mean, starters are starters, but like minutes are what matter, right? And we'll see yes, who gets the minutes. And combinations right? matter, though, David. They really, yeah. Who is with who? That's where he needs to figure it out. If you go back and look at uh, their first two games last year, they they, they lost. They gave them like 130 points, a high, high 128. Um, and they were like half in on the big lineup. And then they after that, and they were shooting ridiculous threes. And JB sat down with the coaching staff and said, we are going to get killed playing this way. And they went more deep into the defense, the big lineup, more ball handling instead of just the first time you see an open shot from halfway from Parma, take it. You know, they just stopped that, which I'm like, good. And then they remember how the fans felt like the Cardians are playing real baseball when the Cavs are at their best. They're saying they're playing real basketball. This is the kind of basketball that I remember. And that's what they need to stay with here. Uh, but they will – I mean, I know this. If I'm playing uh, the the Cavs, I don't care who's a small forward. I'm not guarding him. And I'm hoping he takes more shots than he should because that means Mitchell and Garland and the big guys aren't shooting. Going to be a lot of open shots for those guys. So be have to keep keep an eye on that. So. By the All way, right. do you? I want to ask you, David. What, yeah. what do you? What do you say? I'm. I want fifty-one and one. I mean, since I'm the guy that predicted they would win forty-six games until LeBron won, left the first time and they won nineteen, you have the right to make a prediction with my record. Yeah, I, I think you're. I think fifty wins is is about where I'm at, Terry. And last year they had they had some weird COVID stuff happen, the injuries at the end. I I think 50, 50 wins is kind of where I'm at. I think you're right on it. Um, and you know it's interesting they're they're trying to teach. Okoro how to shoot better and he's a good defensive player and then they've got Lavert who's a, you know pretty good offensive player and they're trying to get him to commit to defense so they're kind of they've kind of got two different pieces of the puzzle that are trying to meet in the middle in a way so and by the be- way a guy who could still be valuable to them and one of the Cavs assistants told me this uh well he mentioned two guys because he said we still like the big lineup and he mentioned you know Dean Wade Six nine help them. You six nine, and he said he's kind of a poor man's marketing. And he said, "Don't forget Kevin Love. You know, we could put him out there with second team guys, disguise him a little bit on defense. And you know, Kevin is if, Kevin had a really good year. The coaches dropped the ball. I I don't care what they how they try to explain that Atlanta game at the end of the year where he played only eleven minutes and three in the second half. Well, he was getting put in the pick and roll." and he was having some trouble. They were having trouble putting the ball in the basket with everybody. They almost killed Darius Garland, um, and they weren't stopping the pick and roll anyway, whoever the heck else was in there. So sometimes, and I'm, I'm more of a defensive guy in the NBA, but there are times when you just say, all right, I'm going to live with Kevin because uh, I'm going to see if he can hit a couple threes real quick, especially with Kevin keeping his attitude good and staying healthy. 
I mean, I'm, I'm fired up. I want to see it. I mean, I want to watch this. I, when Donovan Mitchell wants to, I mean, Mike Fertel was the first one to tell me this. He says, when Mitchell wants to get to a spot on the floor, he'll get there and he'll get a shot off. And he compared him a little bit to Joe Dumars. And the reason Mike comes Ooh, up I like even, that. That's a good comparison. Yeah, yeah. Even more authority than normal on this, you know, because he is, he's a, you know, Mike's a tremendous, was a tremendous coach. He did the Clippers. And he's done the Clippers the last few years, broadcast. So he's in the West. He sees Mitchell and these guys more. So he, he brings more of an opinion on that besides just a basketball former coach from a distance. All right, Terry, we got to move on. We're going to go from a team where expectations are high and people are fired up to a team that's struggling. Where they and, want to fire people. <laughs> and fans are disillusioned. So I don't even know where to start with the Browns this week. There's, there's a lot to get into. Uh, what are you seeing from the Browns, and how, how do they fix this? The defense is, well, the defense is a disaster. Uh, and schematically, there's huge problems. I don't know enough to know other than – it reminds me of what the great basketball ref Earl Strom said to me. I asked him one time about – you know, NBA has its only kind of way of like what's traveling, what isn't. He goes, I can't explain it, but I know it when I see it. And I can't explain what's wrong with their schemes exactly, but I know it when I see it. Because they they don't defend anything for a consistent amount of time. There, there, are, always, there are major breakdowns and players continue to look confused. And there is talent on defense. Maybe it's overrated, but there's still quite a bit of talent on defense. And I, I'm i not big on firing coaches. That's not my style. But I wrote on Sunday, you know, they either got to change something schematically, change the coordinator or something to pretend that they just have to, quote, unquote, work harder. No, they got to work much different. Yeah, they, they really focused on fundamentals last week, and I think the tackling was a little better on Sunday. But, I mean, to me, Terry, there's three things on the defense that I'm seeing this season. And you mentioned the scheme. Number one, if it's the, if it's a bad scheme, it's, it's on the coaches and Joe Woods. Mm-hmm. If it's talent, which I think is part of it, especially in the interior defensive line, like that's on Andrew Barry. Mm-hmm. But the, the most concerning thing that I saw the other day, and I, I'm going to go and watch the game again before the, the week's out, some of those By guys way, on I defense. A, I'm stopping you. Yeah. Two Excedrin before you watch that game. <laughs> All right. I'll write that down. That, that, the doctor orders. Terry's yeah, orders. It's for, for preventative defense is what <laughs> I'm doing for that migraine that is going to come if you're going to stare at that game again. <laughs> but, you know, uh, they talk. the referees in the NFL talk about when a guy, a uh, receiver's forced out of bounds, he was, happy yeah. to, he was happy to go out of bounds, right? I look at the Browns' defense, and it's like they're, they're happy to be blocked sometimes. Some of these mm-hmm. guys get one hat on them, and it's like, all right, well, I'm blocked. And that's they're not playing hard all the time. And I saw that more than ever in Sunday's loss, and that's concerning mm-hmm. in terms of this coaching staff. Did that's you see why, any of that, or what did you think? I saw a very lackadaisical effort, uh, a defeatism, sense of doom. I wrote this. I don't know for a fact, but I, I've been around sports long enough Um Baseball is different because it's so much one-on-one matchups. But I've seen it in basketball, and I've seen it in football. When it, 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 you reach a point in the game where the players are not buying into whatever scheme or plays are being called, and I sensed that early on, even in that New England game when it was fairly close, 
that they just did not seem to whatever they wanted to do. The the guys were not all in on it. I mean, I'm, that's where you get the kind of effort you're talking about. Well, I mean, they played a lot of zone early in the season, and and Joe Woods, I think he's been playing a lot more man, and they played yes. more man on Sunday, and they they couldn't do that well either. So I I just there's there's a lot of problems there. And all I right, give me a th- let me thought because I I really do. You you look at this stuff deeper than I do. It's just more in your wheelhouse than where the other two sports I feel stronger. They have these fast guys, correct? Or allegedly fast linebackers on, 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 defense, on defense, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Allegedly fast linebackers, defensive backs, but they don't seem to create any pressure. I'm not just talking about you know the, the pass rush, just general pressure on on whoever they're facing. I, you know, if part of the reason they went out, and Andrew Berry told me this uh, in one of our preview discussions. Uh, before the season was to have these linebackers because so much he believes that is not only going side to side, you know, to stop the, the, the runs and uh, Lamar Jackson, that, but just that a lot of those, the jet sweeps, those things you see. But he also thought just having these kind of athletes would give you the ability to go and, and really go after uh, the quarterback more, just create more, Pressure defense, like in basketball, just even if they say pick them up three quarters court, make them uncomfortable. That's what I was looking to say. The Browns defense does not make the other team look uncomfortable. It seems like whatever they want to do, they do. Well, and Bill Bill Belichick is famous for taking away the opponent's most dangerous players. And you look on that defense, and Miles Garrett is being double teamed more than anybody else in football right now. Mm -hmm. You double-team Miles Garrett, and there's nobody else on that defense you have to worry about right now. Not one person, especially with they, Denzel Ward out. Yeah, I don't know if the answer is a blitz more or whatever, just something. And I will say this about what Bill did to poor Jacoby Brissett. By the way, I think these guys that come into the league under Bill Belichick, and that's their first coach, You know, he's their daddy, the good daddy or bad daddy. You like him or you didn't like him, but he is your first exposure to pro ball. And when you face him later on, I think you really want to stick it to him and that. Meantime, there's a fear that he is the he is the he is the grumpy genius and he does know you probably as well or better than anyone else. And then you had a coach that came out to what we need is a offense built upon throwing eight passes in the first half to tight ends, a variety of tight ends I may add, and only give the ball to Nick Chubb eight times because we know Bill is known for taking away passes to the middle of the field, so we're going to throw passes down the sidelines to tight ends. And Bill's probably going, thank God they're doing that. This is exactly what we want. We don't want Amari Cooper over the middle. We don't want – I'm like, try it. Why are you going to make – Jacoby Brissett trying to make that throw to Farrell Brown. I mean, it wasn't – fair. I mean, Farrell Brown actually is not a bad player. There's a reason he's – And he was open. And he was open. But it was a tough pass. He's rolling out. He's trying to heave it 50 yards. I mean, ugh. I can't finish the sentence. Yeah, well, no, you're right. He, he takes you out of what you do best, and then you have to do something else, and the Browns couldn't do something else. But he so did that, it on the first. That was his play number yeah. two, wasn't it? It was. He didn't take you two. out of anything. It just yeah. started. I mean, it's just the game just began. What about a sweep to Chubb? Uh, all right, Terry. Lots to go. The lots first to go pass through. was to Harrison Bryant, another tight end. I thought these were the tight end drills, not a game. 
<laughs> All right, Terry, we're running a little long here. We got to okay. get uh, moving on. So your faith column this week, usually you pick one topic and and kind of go deep on it. I, I thought it was an interesting approach this week. You you said you wanted to share with people 10 things that can help you be content. And some people might not really take away all 10. They might pick three or five or seven mm. that they think can help their lives. But um, I, how did you end up with this topic and kind of uh, tell people a little bit about what ended up in this column, which will right. appear the Saturday column, on the column has, and Sunday in The Plain Dealer. Yes, I'm sorry. The column has 10 points. But the main thing is, first of all, people confuse happiness with content. You know, happiness oftentimes is dictated by circumstances. Um, you know, contentment is, even, uh, for example, when I went to see John Adams and the, the drummer in the nursing home, John's on dialysis three times a week. He's dealing with heart issues, all kinds of problems. Uh, he is, if he was just purely unhappiness, he would be unhappy. I mean, there's a lot wrong with him. But content, he's still working hard to try to get better, but he is focusing on the A's that are nice to him, the cars that come in, the guardians on TV, uh, the people still remember he played the drum. He's staying in that thing. So you could be content in the middle of a lot of pain and struggle. Um, but if you were, if our view of life is simply based on what makes me happy, uh, we're going to be unhappy a lot. So I, I, I write a lot about relationships and it, it gets pretty involved, but it's a nice thing is, is 10 quick things. And uh, that's coming Saturday and then Sunday in the paper. Yeah. And the one, one that I really like, and we've talked about this before is just, is the argument worth the relationship, yeah. especially given how divided the country is? Uh, you know, I know people who are on Facebook and somebody says something that rubs them the wrong way and they unfriend them and they never talk to them again. And it's just, uh, I think you've quoted a phrase that your dad used to say, is that the hill you want to die on? Die on. Right? Yeah, it's and exactly you've it. You've got years of relationship that you just let slip away because of one thing that somebody said. And, I mean, uh, if you're going to define a relationship with how they are political, you're probably eliminating half the country. Yep. Never more true than now. So, And by the way, not all these things need to be discussed. It's plenty of other things. You know, talk about your kids. Talk about the person that's been sick. Talk about, you know, all kinds of stuff. Complain about the Browns. That'll bring you together. For three hours. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, got some Hey Terry questions. Terry, let's okay. see how we're doing on time here. All right. We're not too bad. we got a couple of minutes. Um, this one's from Howard Ross. And Howard writes to say, hey, Terry. What did the Guardians DHs hit this year, and how did they compare with the rest of the league's contenders? It sure seemed like we had a bunch of guys, beginning with Reyes, that not only couldn't hit the long ball, they couldn't hit at all. I have to think that a really good DH would would have put us over the top what Reyes was supposed to be. Thanks for your consideration. Then Again, that's from Howard Ross. Terry, DH is in the Guardians. Great question. Better than I even thought, or it was worse than I even thought. Uh, in terms of the DHs in the uh, in the playoffs, they hit three three for twenty eight with a homer. Um, during the regular season, which is more indicative, only Oakland's was worst. They hit two seventeen five eighty seven OPS, and they had the fewest amount of home runs eight from the DH position. So I think that's definitely something they're going to look at. Because you just need a guy that could hit, and as I suggested, maybe play a little first base. Uh, and the Reyes, Reyes falling apart. And by the way, he hit for a little while with the Cubs and then collapsed there. Uh, that was a big problem for this team because had he hit his 30 home runs, which he had hit 
in the two previous seasons where they played 162 games, uh, it would have been a different team. Oh, yeah, and just imagine this past series if, if, if they would yeah. have had somebody with that kind of pop. Um, all right, Terry, we got one more. This one, I know we're right after the season, but this question came in, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it. It's from Andrew from Glen Ellen, Virginia, and he says, Hey, Terry, I hate to even think about this, but if Tito decides to retire after this dream season yeah. ends, who do you think will be the next Guardian's next manager? I'm going to go with Sandy Alomar Jr., who edges out Demarlo Hale for the job. Sorry, I stumbled over that. Andy Tracy is my sleeper selection, and if you want drama, my outside the organization choice is Kevin Cash from Tampa Bay with the Rays receiving a player or two in return. If Tito decides to retire, I'd love to see the Guardians or Tito agree to a job title, such as special advisor to the GM or something like that to keep Francona in the organization. Love the podcast as always. And then again, that's Andrew from Glen Allen, Virginia. Thanks for that, Andrew. What do you think, Terry? We'll we'll work a little backwards. Um, Tito will be a Cleveland front office guy the rest of his life regardless of what happens because first of all they have a lot of consultants if you look at that secondly uh they love him and want his input uh, now you know his contract is up not that he's going anywhere because he's well actually he is going somewhere he goes to cleveland clinic where they they it's kind of like they overhaul the whole car and they look at everything physically to see what he can do and frank Kona is such a um honorable guy, Dave. I mean, he could have insisted like, you know, I want a long-term contract or whatever, but he's like, no, I'm going to let this go out to make sure I'm healthy. I mean, he just, he, he's, he's remarkable. He just is. I don't want to use that word a couple times with him because it's true. Okay. Um, I think the next manager will be tomorrow. Hale. he's been cruelly in training the last couple of years. Uh, they discovered and Sandy too, Sandy Alomar, People think, well, he's just kind of coaching first base. His real job is ba- is coaching the catchers, game planning with the catchers. There's a reason that the Cleveland catchers are great at blocking balls in the dirt, running the game. That's Sandy's. It's kind of like being an offensive line coach or something. It's like one of these specialized areas, and he lo- does love that. And I think he found a, being an interim manager, and that it just – there's a lot of headaches with it. You spend a lot of time at the front office. You spend a lot of time at the media. It's not just being down there and coaching. I remember him talking to me about in spring training about teaching uh, when they had Carlos Santana as a young catcher. On. I mean, he's showing me how to block the balls and this and Santana. I mean, this was his passion. It was clearly what he loves. So that's why I think it'll be Hale, and I think it'll be fine with Sandy because he likes the job he has. And he's one of the best at it, as the yes. results have shown. So, All right, Terry, thanks for that really interesting stuff, and thanks for all the questions. If you want to get a question to us for next week's podcast, you can send it to sports at cleveland.com by email. And also, if you want to find Terry on his Facebook page, that's another good place, and we'll try and get, this, get your question on next week's podcast. That'll do it, right, Terry? That'll do it. And right. I do have an appearance coming up. I keep forgetting November 2nd. 6.30 p.m., the Worcester Library, November 2nd, 6.30 p.m., Worcester Library. All and right. David will be there. You'll be driving all the way from the west side to Worcester, I'm sure. I have to get to one of these. I tell you, now that um, now that things are hopefully going to slow down here in, the, in November, we'll see. But um, all right, that'll do it. I'm going to take a couple of Excedrin and go watch the Browns game again, Terry. My condolences. <laughs> have a good weekend. We'll catch you next week on Terry's Talking.